And now we worship him by opening our hearts to receive uh, from him, from his word. And to that end, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we're doing a verse-by-verse study through the Gospel of John. And as we continue in our study this morning, we come to John chapter 8, verse 1. And my goal today is to cover uh, verses 1 through 11 And the title of the message this morning is Jesus Addresses an Adulteress and Her Accusers. Jesus addresses or he deals with an adulteress and her accusers. In our passage today, we're going to observe Jesus manifesting remarkable wisdom and grace and how he deals with an adulterous woman and in how he deals with the men who were trying to get her condemned for her sin. And I believe this passage is going to be very appropriate uh, for us uh, today for a number of reasons that I think we'll see as we work through the text this morning. Never has our society been more wicked than it is today, uh, and yet never has our society been more self-righteous than it is Today, people have denied that there is even such a thing as sin, and yet they find themselves still plagued by a persistent guilt that they don't know what to do with. So what do they do? Well, what they do is when somebody else messes up really, really badly, they pounce on that wrongdoer and publicly shame them in every way possible. And they do this as a way of alleviating their own sense of guilt for their own failures. In his article entitled, The Moral Economy of Guilt, Wilfred McClay speaks about this phenomenon that is so common today. And he says, and I quote, by attacking the offender forcefully and ostentatiously, the accusers displace their guilt onto him and prove to all the world their own relative innocence. Upon the accused person's head are placed the sins of the community, enacting one of the most ancient acts of moral transference. It is an ugly and corrosive little ritual, unquote. And we see this corrosive little ritual practiced over and over again in our culture today. And social media and the cable news stations are often the stage where this ritual plays out. And sadly, this kind of thing doesn't just happen in the world amongst non-believers, but it happens even among Christians in marriages and in situations of interpersonal conflict with one another. But here's what we're going to learn in our passage today. I want to prepare you for this. If you found out something really awful about somebody else and you were to drag that person to Jesus and accuse that person before Jesus, 
our passage today shows us that Jesus would deal with that person, but probably not in a way that is to your liking. And he would also deal with you in a way that will very likely leave you feeling the sting of your own sin. This is what we're going to see in our text today. But before we look at our passage uh, for today, I have a few words to say about the text itself. Um, And we don't normally get into this kind of thing, but this text uh, merits this because there is something very unusual about this passage. As many of you know, some of the oldest surviving Greek manuscripts and translations of the Gospel of John exclude the verses that I'm going to be preaching from this morning, which is why in your translation, you probably see John chapter 7, verse 53, all the way through chapter 8, verse 11, marked off in some way. You will also be interested to know that when this story does show up in the Greek manuscripts, it shows up in different locations. In some Greek manuscripts, this story is found beginning after John chapter 7, verse 36. In other manuscripts, it is found beginning right after John chapter 7, verse 44. In most manuscripts where it shows up, it is found after John chapter 7, verse 52, which is where we find it in most modern translations like the New American Standard Bible that I am preaching from. In other manuscripts, this story is found at the end of John's gospel, kind of like an appendix. Oddly enough, there is one family of Greek manuscripts that has this story after Luke chapter 21, verse 38. Go figure. Most evangelical biblical scholars would say that they're honestly not sure where this particular story goes exactly. Many of them question whether it was even written by the Apostle John himself, but most of them would join the textual critical scholar Bruce Metzger in saying that this story has all the earmarks of historical veracity. And while it is true that the oldest available manuscripts of John's gospel that we have in our possession today lack this story, there is evidence that it was included in some manuscripts in the early centuries of the church. In fact, prior to A.D. 130, uh, a church father uh, actually mentioned an event in his writings that was recorded in the Gospels regarding a woman who was brought to Jesus with charges made against her. So he got that from somewhere. The church father Ambrose cited the story of the adulterous woman in some of his writings in the latter part of the 300s AD. Around 400 AD, the church father Jerome included this story in his Latin translation of the Bible, later saying this about this story 
that we're going to look at today. He says, and I quote, in the gospel according to John, in many manuscripts, both Greek and Latin, is found the story of the adulterous woman who was accused before the Lord. Around that same time, Augustine speculated about why the story might have been removed from John's account by different copyists. And he says, and I quote, certain persons of little faith, fearing, I suppose, lest their wives be given impunity in sinning, remove from their manuscripts the Lord's act of forgiveness toward the adulteress, unquote. Now, I share these quotes from Jerome and Augustine simply to demonstrate the fact that the story of Jesus and the adulterous woman was included in some ancient manuscripts that they had access to back in their day. And to let you know that the integrity of this particular passage was highly esteemed by Augustine, enough so to leave him bothered by its exclusion from some manuscripts and speculating aloud about the reason that some might have chosen to exclude this story. So, in a nutshell, I personally don't know for sure if John wrote this story, though I think it is quite possible that he did. And I don't know for sure that this story belongs right here after John chapter 7, verse 52, though I think it is possible that it does. But I do believe that the events recorded in this story happened And I am very grateful that God has seen fit to preserve this story as a part of our scriptures today. And while this story certainly does get around and show up in five different places in our New Testament manuscripts, the one place where I'm absolutely sure it does belong is in our hearts. So let's look at this passage and see what God has to say to us through it this morning. And the way we're going to break down our study of this text is we're going to observe seven developments in this account of Jesus dealing with an adulteress and her accusers. Seven developments in this account of Jesus dealing with an adulteress and her accusers. It's a riveting story. Development number one, the scribes and Pharisees bring an adulteress to Jesus. The scribes and Pharisees bring an adulteress to Jesus. As believers, we're always trying to bring people to Jesus, right? Well, the scribes and Pharisees bring a sinner to Jesus. Beginning in verse 1, the writer says, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and it's probably good to know that the peak of the Mount of Olives was about one mile from the eastern gate of Jerusalem where the temple was situated. Jesus has been in the temple, so it would make sense for Jesus to go to the Mount of Olives at the end of the day and spend the night there with somebody uh, on the slope of the Mount of Olives, uh, just like we're going to see him doing six months from now during the Passion Week. But once the night is over and the sun rises on the next day, observe what the narrator tells us that Jesus did. Verse 2, Early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people were coming to him 
and he sat down and began to teach them. And it is while Jesus is doing this that something dramatic happens. Observe verse 3, the scribes. These were men who were experts in the interpretation of the Old Testament law and its application to life and to legal disputes. The text says the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery and having set her in the center of the court, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Who it was who caught this woman in the act of adultery, we do not know. It could have been the scribes and Pharisees who caught her, or it could have been the woman's husband, or it could have been somebody else. We don't know. Either way, these men bring this woman to Jesus, and to make this situation as attention-getting and shame-inducing as possible, they set her in the center of the court, and then they announced to Jesus that this woman was caught in the very act of adultery, which is a violation of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. Now, we don't know much at this point of the story, but the question that should be on all of our minds at this point is, doesn't it take two people to commit adultery? And if so, where is the man that this woman was committing adultery with? Why wasn't he brought to Jesus along with this woman? And the honest answer is, we don't know. Perhaps he fled the scene and got away. Perhaps the scribes and Pharisees let the man get away because they were male chauvinists who only cared about bringing a woman to justice. Perhaps these scribes and Pharisees had set a trap for this woman and are now exploiting the situation to find some fault with Jesus. Whatever is going on here, we're already getting a bad vibe, right? About what these men are after. They're clearly not pursuing an equal justice being done to the adulterous man and woman, they simply want this woman to get what's coming to her. And notice how these scribes and Pharisees are what they call Jesus. They call him teacher in verse 4. They're pretending respect for Jesus and they're Revealing ultimately the reason they're bringing this woman to him. Their thought is, Jesus, if you're going to presume to be a teacher in Israel, then let's see what you will do with this situation so that you can teach everyone present by how you respond to this situation that we are bringing to you. And this brings us to the second development in this account of Jesus dealing with with an adulteress and her accusers. Number two, they, the scribes and Pharisees, remind Jesus of the law of Moses and they ask for his verdict. They remind Jesus of the law of Moses and they ask for his verdict. Observe what they say to Jesus in verse five. 
Now, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What then do you say? These men are partially right in what they are saying. You can write down the reference Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, where Moses says, If there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress must be put to death. Now, you'll notice in Leviticus 20, verse 10 that I just read, required that both the man and the woman be put to death. Yet the scribes and Pharisees are simply reminding Jesus that the law of Moses commanded them to stone the women involved in such situations. That's a mighty convenient omission for these men. On another front, there's nothing actually said in Leviticus 20.10 about stoning in particular, but in Deuteronomy 22, verses 23 to 24, we do find a law requiring that if an engaged woman is found to be sexually unfaithful to her fiancé, then she and the man she commits adultery with should be put to death by stoning. So that mode of execution is explicitly stated there. So drawing, no doubt, from these provisions in the law, these scribes and Pharisees remind Jesus that the law of Moses required death by stoning for adultery. And then they say to Jesus, what then do you say? Now, what was their motive in asking for Jesus' verdict? In verse 6, the writer says, they were saying this, testing him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. Turns out, yes, they're accusing this woman, but she's just a means to an end for them to be able to accuse Jesus. And we've already seen how these men, as John chapter 7 unfolded, they have reason enough to want to arrest Jesus and have him killed, but they're also observing that a growing number of people are actually believing in Jesus, either as the Messiah or as the Moses-like prophet that was foretold in Deuteronomy 18. So their strategy here is clear. If they could show Jesus in a situation where he says the opposite of what Moses commands, then the people might be persuaded to abandon him. And these men would have a pretext for bringing a charge against Jesus before the Sanhedrin. This motive on their part tells us that these men are fully expecting Jesus to say something different from what the law of Moses says. They're expecting Jesus in all likelihood to call for mercy for this woman. But that said, in the mind of these men, even if Jesus declares that this woman should be stoned, that would be a win for these scribes and Pharisees also. If Jesus has her stoned, he would probably lose some favor with the people for being too harsh, partly because stoning for adultery was not 
often actually carried out in the first century in the urban areas such as Jerusalem. And if Jesus calls for her to be stoned, it is possible also that Jesus could get in trouble with Rome because Roman law did not allow for Jews to carry out capital punishment without Rome's approval. So this is a dicey situation for Jesus. Either way he chooses to respond is fraught with risks, which had to leave these scribes and Pharisees feeling pretty smug right now, just absolutely sure that they have Jesus on the horns of a dilemma from which he will not be able to escape. So how will Jesus respond in this situation? Will he show this woman grace as he was known to do? Will he go against the law and tell these men not to stone her? Or will he succumb to the pressure of the moment and command her to be stoned? This is a riveting moment for all those gathered on this occasion and for us too as we read this story. And imagine how this woman must be feeling right now, absolutely humiliated and terrified as she waits for Jesus' reply. Well, Jesus does respond, and he responds in a way that had to have seemed so absolutely strange at first, which brings us to the third development in this story of Jesus dealing with an adulterous woman and her accusers. Number three, Jesus stoops down and writes with his finger on the ground. If you're ever faced with any dilemma and you're like, I don't know what to do here, just stoop down and write on the, finger, or write on the ground with your finger. This is what Jesus does. At the end of verse 6, the writer of this text says, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled with speculation over what it was that Jesus was writing on the ground. This is actually the only time in the gospel accounts where Jesus is said to write anything at all. Some suggest that Jesus is writing on the ground the words of Jeremiah 17, 13, which says in the Greek Septuagint, and I quote, let all who have departed from you be ashamed let them that have revolted be written on the earth because they have forsaken the fountain of living water. Others suggest that Jesus is writing down what he's about to say in the next verse, thereby imitating the practice of Roman magistrates who would first write down their sentence or verdict before reading it aloud. Others suggest that Jesus is writing out the sins of the woman's accusers. In fact, there are some Greek manuscripts that specifically say in verse 6 and in verse 8 that Jesus wrote on the ground the sins of each one of them. Others suggest that Jesus might be writing the words of Exodus 23, verse 1, where it says, Do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. Still others suggest that Jesus might have been writing the Ten Commandments 
which is quite possible. We're being told here that Jesus is writing on the ground with his finger, and we learn in Deuteronomy 9.10 that the Ten Commandments were written with the finger of God. These are all great guesses as to what it was that Jesus was writing on the ground here. The problem is that the writer of this story never tells us what it is that Jesus is writing on the ground. So it must not have been important to the story as much as we might wish to know. All the author of this text wants us to know is that Jesus stooped down and that he wrote on the ground with his finger. So the more important question is, why does Jesus even bother doing what he does here? Well, at least we can say with confidence that in stooping down to write on the ground, Jesus is turning away from the woman's accusers and thereby remaining distant from the situation and thereby modeling a slowness to get involved. Other people, lesser men, would have been eager to jump into this situation and ask for the salacious details of the woman's sins and then chime in with their opinion and then join these men in stoning this woman. But Jesus is not eager to get involved in this situation. He seems more interested in whatever he is writing on the ground than he is in adjudicating the case of this woman. It's no wonder that some Greek manuscripts say in this verse that Jesus wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And you see that those extra words reflected in the translation of the New King James Bible. So he writes on the ground as though he did not hear. And whether those extra words are original to the writer of this story or not, I think they do accurately reflect exactly what Jesus is doing. Evidently, Jesus is not someone who is quick to hear an evil report about another person, and he's not quick to press judgment either. And Jesus is definitely not eager to get involved in this situation where these accusers are playing Russian roulette with this woman's life, publicly shaming her and wanting to stone her, all in a wicked effort to put Jesus to the test so that they could accuse him. In fact, notice the first words of verse 7, where it says, but when they persisted in asking him. Let's stop there for a moment. The language here indicates that these men are feeling ignored by Jesus inasmuch as they are getting no answer from him. Instead, he's just writing on the ground with his finger, which means that had these men never persisted In asking Jesus their question and just walked away, Jesus would have never gotten involved in this situation at all. But verse 7 tells us that these men persisted, asking Jesus again and again, while Jesus just keeps writing on the ground until it became evident to Jesus that these men were not going to go away. 
So Jesus finally decides to respond, which brings us to the fourth development in this account of Jesus dealing with an adulteress and her accusers. Number four, Jesus commands those without sin to commence the stoning. Jesus commands those without sin to commence or to start the stoning. Observe what Jesus does in verse 7. But when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. So Jesus straightens himself up. He looks directly at these men and he gives them this instruction. And guys, this instruction is not simply a permission being granted. It's actually a command. And he says to them, whoever among you is the man without sin, I give you this command. Be the first to throw a stone at her. In giving this instruction Jesus is commanding these men to do exactly what Moses instructed. But he gives a condition for the person who gets the stoning started. And that condition is that the person to throw the first stone must be without sin. And it's very important to note here that Jesus is not imposing this condition on anyone else who will throw stones at this woman. He only imposes this condition on the person who throws the first stone. And that's important to note. Why does he do this? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 9, and in Deuteronomy 17, verse 7, the law requires that the first person to throw stones at a condemned person was to be an actual witness of the crime. And then others who were not witnesses were allowed to join in. And as far as being a witness goes, there was also a command in Exodus 23 verse 1 that said, and I read this earlier, do not help a wicked man by being a malicious witness. That's from the law. In other words, don't be a witness against someone with malicious intent, evil intent. And this particular provision in Exodus 23 verse 1 would actually disqualify every one of these men in this story because of their wicked intentions to use this woman's case ultimately in an effort to destroy Jesus. So all in all, Jesus is doing a couple things here. Rather than going against the law of Moses like these men had hoped for, Jesus is actually giving these men the law on steroids in a way that they don't measure up to. He's upholding the law that an adulterer be put to death, but he's also upholding the law's requirement against malicious witnesses. And he's also wanting these men to ponder their own sin against God, their own violations of the law of God before they go putting this woman to death for her sin. Remember again that these men had let this woman's male lover go. So they clearly aren't interested in real and equal justice here. 
I mean, think about it. They want this woman stoned, but the guy who was involved with her gets a free pass. What kind of malicious inequity is that? Actually, I'll tell you what kind of inequity it was. It was a very common inequity in this day, just as it is in many cultures today. As one commentator says in describing this inequity back in the first century, he says, and I quote, as in many societies around the world, so here, when it comes to sexual sins, the woman was much more likely to be in legal and social jeopardy than her male lover. The man could lead a respectable life while masking the same sexual sins with a knowing wink. But here, in this situation, Jesus' simple condition regarding the first person to throw a stone cuts through the double standard and drives hard to reach the conscience of these men. In fact, many commentators suggest that these men accusing this woman had been guilty of adultery themselves. If not in action, at least they were guilty of committing adultery in their hearts without repentance. If this is true, these men would likely understand Jesus to be saying, he who is without sin in this very matter of adultery, let him cast the first stone at this adulterous woman. So ultimately, on multiple levels, there is not a one of these men who is without sin. There's only one man in this story who is truly without sin, right? And that's Jesus. And before he even deals with this woman for her sin, he deals first with the sin of these men in an absolutely brilliant, Solomon-like move. Jesus turns the tables on these men and leaves them on the horns of a dilemma that none of them saw coming. And after Jesus does this, he returns to what he was doing before he spoke to them, which brings us to the fifth development in this account, number five, Jesus stoops down and writes on the ground again. Notice what the writer says in verse eight. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. In other words, he returns to his previous activity in which he was distancing himself from involvement in this situation. And as he writes, he's not even evidently looking at these men to see what they're going to do. He's focusing on his writing, and he leaves it to these men to weigh his words and figure out what they want to do next. And again, there are some Greek manuscripts that say that Jesus was writing on the ground the sins of these men who had brought this woman to him. That may be true. It may not be true. We don't know. But what is clear is that Jesus writing on the ground represents the fact that he has no interest in condemning this woman to death. This would make total sense, given that later in John chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus will say, I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So condemning this woman to death for 
Her sin is not what Jesus has come to do in his first coming. He would be more interested in saving this woman's soul and delivering her out of her sin. Keep in mind that Jesus has, in effect, given these men the right to stone this woman, but he imposes a condition on the person who would dare to throw the first stone, and that is that he must be without sin. Without sin in this situation, or without sin regarding the matter of adultery at hand. So how do these men respond? Development number six. They walk away one by one, leaving Jesus and the woman alone. They walk away one by one, leaving Jesus and the woman alone. Observe what happens in verse nine. When they heard it, so when they heard Jesus say, What he said to them, he who is without sin cast the first stone. When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Notice the two ways these men's response is described. First of all, they began to go out one by one, so they all didn't just turn on their heels and walk away. This took time to unfold, and they left one person at a time. And the narrator also tells us that this walking away began with the older ones leaving first. Evidently, there was still enough of a conscience in these men for them to realize that they were sinners themselves who have a lot of sin that they are guilty of, even in this situation, perhaps even realizing that they were adulterers just like this woman was. And as we might expect, the older ones were more quick to realize their sin than the younger ones were, perhaps because being older, they had committed more sins, or perhaps because they were less blinded by youthful arrogance than the younger men would have been. Actually, some Greek manuscripts have verse 9 reading this way. When they, the men, heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, they began to go out one by one. We see these extra words, being convicted by their own conscience in the New King James Version of the Bible. Whether or not these extra words are original to the author of this passage, they certainly do describe, I think, exactly what is happening here. As these men think about what Jesus has said and then hang their heads and drop their stones and one by one, from the oldest to the youngest, walk away from this scene. And guys, what these men are doing now is absolutely stunning. They could have responded in other ways. They could have responded to Jesus' words by ignoring their conscience and ignoring Jesus and going ahead and stoning this woman on the spot. Or they could have responded by grabbing this woman and saying to Jesus, forget it, we'll just take her to the Sanhedrin where justice will be done. But they don't do either of these things. They walk away, not only from Jesus, but they also walk away from this woman 
and they leave her alone with Jesus. That's an amazing shift, an amazing change of heart, showing that these men are no longer interested in condemning this woman to death because they're aware of their own sins. Perhaps the Spirit of God is graciously working in some of their hearts through the words that Jesus has spoken to them, which might lead to their salvation one day. We may meet some of these men in heaven, and this is the turning point for them as Jesus gave them law that convicted their hearts and perhaps later led to them coming to Christ in desperation and believing in him. In verse 9, we're told that they all walk away until, look at the text, he was left alone and the woman where she was in the center of the court. Imagine what this woman is feeling in this moment as she sees these accusers walk away, leaving her alone with Jesus. In fact, how fortunate this woman is that these scribes and Pharisees even brought her to Jesus. What these scribes and Pharisees initially meant for evil, God has used for good. For these men have unwittingly brought this woman to the one man and the only man who can minister to her with the perfect balance of grace and truth and deliver her from the guilt and the power of her sin, which is exactly what he does next. Which brings us to the seventh and the final development in this account of Jesus dealing with an adulterous woman and her accusers. Number seven, Jesus refrains from condemning the woman and commands her to stop her sinning. Jesus refrains from condemning the woman and commands her to stop her sinning. After looking up and seeing that all the men are gone, Jesus decides now to re-involve himself in the situation Observe what the text says in verse 10. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, woman, where, where are they? In other words, where did your accusers go who claim to have caught you in the very act of adultery? And then he asked, did no one condemn you? In other words, did no one choose to carry out the condemnation of the death sentence upon you? Jesus knows the answer to the question because she's standing there alive in front of him, but he wants the woman to say the answer out loud. The woman looks at Jesus, and verse 11 tells us, she said, no one, Lord. Notice how she is calling Jesus Lord. This is the Greek word kurios that is translated Lord hundreds of times in the New Testament. In this passage, in this context, this word could merely be a respectful address equivalent to our English word, sir. It could be that that's all she is doing is calling him sir. Or it could be that this woman is already falling under the influence of Jesus and would be happy as anything to surrender her life to this one who has saved her from these evil men. 
whoever this woman's former lover was, he abandoned her and left her to be condemned alone. But Jesus has chased away her accusers and now stands before her as the ultimate lover of her soul. Oh, this woman has never met a man like Jesus. Amen. No one is here to condemn me, Lord, she essentially says. And in verse 11, we read these words. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. In saying, I do not condemn you either, Jesus is not at all acting as if this woman has done nothing wrong. She has committed a serious violation of the law that is worthy of death, but Jesus refuses to condemn her, and there are two reasons for this. First, he didn't come to condemn in his first coming, but to save. So Jesus is more interested in saving this woman's soul than in condemning her to death. And second, and this is very important, there are no longer any witnesses to her crime who are now present on this scene. So according to the law of Moses, she cannot and should not be stoned because there are no witnesses present to begin the casting of stones, according to the requirement of Deuteronomy 13.9 and Deuteronomy 17.7. You see how Jesus is responding with amazing grace, and yet he's upholding the law of Moses on every level. Jesus says, I do not condemn you either. And then reflecting the perfect balance of both grace and truth, Jesus says to her, go. From now on, sin no more. Go, as in go forth from this place of accusation and shame, this place that was to be your place of condemnation and death, which has now become your place of pardon and release. Go from this spot. And then he says, from now on, sin no more. His use of the words from now on, makes it clear that he knows that this woman has been sinning up to this point and that he views her actions as a sinful violation of God's law. But here he says, from this point forward, up to this point, you have been sinning. From this point forward, sin no more or stop your sinning or leave this life of sin that you have been living. Evidently, the grace that Jesus is giving her in this moment is not to be some cheap grace that forgives but leaves her in her sin, but a grace that frees her from the power of her sin so that she can walk in newness of life. We're actually not told what this woman does with Jesus' counsel. The story ends here. But I think it quite likely that this woman who just called Jesus Lord in verse 11 went forth and happily did exactly what Jesus told her to do, soaring on the wings of his grace into a whole new life. This woman was totally exposed before the Lord Jesus. Her sins were laid bare before him and 
before everyone else gathered for all the world to see. What an awful moment this must have been for this woman initially. Imagine yourself in this woman's situation. Imagine the worst thing you've ever done, being exposed before Jesus and a crowd of people in this way. Yet Jesus stayed on the scene and he loved this woman still, withholding condemnation and calling her to a whole new life. What is not to love about a savior like this? So in a matter of minutes, what was at first the worst moment of this woman's life has become the most wonderful moment of her life. And it's all because of Jesus. Amen? There's so much to this passage that we have looked at today. Um, I have felt... Um, unusually burdened studying this passage and preparing to preach it, um, not because this passage is not clear, but because it's just hard to do justice to what happens in this story. And I'm thankful that however fumbling my efforts might be, the Spirit can always do justice to the text of scripture as we read it and engage with it with open hearts. But in an effort to do justice to what we've seen this morning, let's just ponder a few things as we close this morning. First, as I said earlier, the only man without sin in this story is whom? It's Jesus. And he knows this woman's sin fully. And her sin of adultery was actually a sin against him as God. Which means that Jesus is the only one who had the right to begin the stoning of this woman. Yet he does not do that. And we are left asking, how can the sinless and holy Jesus allow this woman to escape from the condemnation that she deserves for her sins? How can he withhold from her the death sentence that the law actually demands? The reason Jesus can release her from the condemnation she deserves is because six months from now, Jesus will actually place himself under that condemnation for her. And he will undergo something far worse than stoning He will be crucified on a cross and bear the full weight of the judgment of God upon himself so that people like you and me and this adulterous woman and her accusers can be freed from the condemnation that we all deserve for our sins if we would but look to Jesus and believe in him. Through what Jesus did in dying on the cross for our sins, he silenced the accusations and the condemnation of the law against us. He provided atonement for our sins at the cross. And when we came to Jesus, were drawn to Jesus by the Father, and we believed in him and called upon his name, he spoke words of release and forgiveness over us. And then 
called us to go forth and to walk in newness of life. If you have never stood before Jesus with your sins laid bare, please come before him today and do that. You have no reason to be afraid of Jesus in that sense. Come to him and confess your sins to him and ask him to be your savior from those sins. And then you will get to hear him pronounce forgiveness over you and call you to a whole new life. This actually brings up another point worth mentioning. If Jesus were like some people today, he would have refused to call this woman's adultery sin at all. He would have said to her, neither do I condemn you. So go and continue your sexual activities and don't let any hateful bigots tell you that you are wrong. Walk in pride and be unashamed of your sexual preferences. But this is not what Jesus does with this woman. He speaks of this woman's actions as sin. And then he calls her out of her sin into a new way of life, saying, from now on, sin no more. Be done with your sins. And this is exactly what Jesus has been doing, guys, for the last 2,000 years And what he's done in many of our lives, changing sinners who were on their way to the condemnation of hell into people who become something radically different from what they once were before they met Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the apostle Paul says, do not be deceived Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. This is the profound change that Jesus can accomplish in the lives of those who are being saved through him. A final thing we should do with this text is to Allow it to humble us and to teach us to not be so quick to judge and condemn others, but to see every sinner, including sinners against us, as a potential recipient of the saving grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus. Before we call out others for their sins, let's address the log in our own eye before we go trying to play eye doctor in someone else's life. Let's be willing to call ourselves out for our own sins 
so that even when we must address the sins of others, we can do so in a way that is seasoned by a humble awareness of our own sin and the grace that Jesus has shown toward us. As the commentator Carl Laney says, it is sad but true that many people take more delight in investigating the faults of others than in scrutinizing their own lives and conduct. The religious leaders epitomized this perversity, something against which we all need to guard ourselves. May God give us such grace to guard ourselves from this great tendency in all of us, even in situations of interpersonal conflict in our marriages and in our relationships with people in the workplace and our brothers and sisters in the Lord and the church. Let's realize that the line that runs between good and evil doesn't run cleanly between accusers and the accused. But it runs right through every human heart, including mine and yours. And let's realize that at the end of the day, both the accusers and the accused need a savior. And Jesus is the savior that we all need. And thankfully, Jesus is not just willing to be the savior of the accused, but of accusers also. And as someone who stands before you, who is a natural born accuser, that's really good news. Let's pray together. Lord, I don't know where to see myself in this story. I totally resonate with this woman who was accused and worthy of death. But sadly, I see myself in these accusers also. And I am thankful, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to Stop your writing on the ground and look at these men and speak to them a truth bomb that they really needed to hear, that we need to hear as well, that I need to hear. And that you are also willing, Lord Jesus, to look at this woman guilty of adultery And say, I do not condemn you. Now go and be done with your sin. What grace is this? It's the same grace that you have shown to so many of us in this room, Lord. We all deserve eternal death and damnation for our sins. And yet, before your all-seeing eyes, we were exposed at the foot of the cross and 
there at the foot of the cross, we saw ourselves for what we really were, the sinners that we really were, but we also saw that we were far more loved than we ever dared to imagine. And there in that spot, we experienced our most wonderful moment of receiving your grace. But oh, how often, Lord, we forget that moment and we forget that grace. And we forget the kind of savior you are and we can turn and look at those that have wronged us and we can accuse and we can condemn with the precision of an attorney. We become masters at communicating the sins of others. And we're just not quite so passionate about calling ourselves out and confessing our own sins and repenting of our own sins and seeing that at the foot of the cross, we are all on level ground, the accusers and the accused. Bring about, Lord, just uh, an enlightening of all of our eyes that we would see these things more clearly than ever, that we would be blown away by your greatness, by your holiness, and by your staggering grace. And may that grace transform us day by day. If there's any in this room that have never come to you, Lord Jesus, may this be the day where they cry out to you for salvation and experience the pardon that only you can give and then begin this life of transformation that only you can give through the power of your Holy Spirit. Help us, Lord, by embracing these truths that we've learned today to show the world a different way and thereby be the light that you've called us and saved us to be in this dark place. I pray that for us and for every church here in Riverside and throughout this state of California and throughout this country and throughout the world that they may see Jesus in us. We ask all these things, Lord, in the name of Jesus and all God's people said,